Welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. And today, I have an amazing guest, Mr. Yusuf Freeman. Yusuf is currently the Managing Director of California at Jonathan Rose Companies. How are you, Yusuf? Yusuf? Doing well. Doing well. How are you doing? I'm great, man. We were just talking before about being trapped in our houses. You're over in Piedmont in the uh, California in the East Bay. I am in San Carlos and the Peninsula, both California guys. It's uh, how are you doing over there? You, you hanging in? How's Piedmont? How's the vibe in Piedmont? We're recording today on uh, May nineteenth, twenty twenty, so still quarantined over here. It's it's we're doing all right. Chasing around my toddler a bit, and wife is expecting <laughs> number two uh, in a couple of months, so it's real exciting trying to keep up with that and still get some work done. Wow. I have a friend who's a uh, a nurse and in, uh, in in Oakland, and she's involved with the in the baby ward. Given you know, um, she said it's a very interesting time to be giving birth. I mean, everything's I guess everything's all right, but every, people are just a little on tense, you know, a little nervous, right. a little on edge. Um, but I've actually had a couple friends that I've given birth over the last couple of months or since we've been quarantined. So, um, cool, congratulations, appreciate it. Um. So you just started with Jonathan Rose, correct? I did. I I made the transition right after the uh, shelter in place orders <laughs> came down in the state. So, you know, the idea of opening up a uh, West Coast office here in the Bay Area when no offices were open was a, a bit of a challenge. But it's it's been great, and you know, it's been about two months now. And and honestly, I think. You know, with the company being headquartered in New York, I'm getting a lot more FaceTime with uh, with the rest of the team since everyone's at home and on Zoom. So I think it's uh, accelerated my integration with the company. Yeah. And for those who don't know, I mean, Jonathan Rose is one of the largest affordable housing investment shops in America. Um, can you just give a little background of, of, what the, of the firm? Yeah. So we've been around since 1989 and we're focused on development, investment, asset management, property management, with a focus on developing communities with environmental and social responsibility at their core. Uh, we have about 400 employees now, six offices around the country, um, developed or own over 15,000 units with 13,000 of those units having some level of, of affordability. That's awesome. I, I work with a number of, like I was telling you before, a number of affordable housing clients. I love it. I think it's a, I, I feel a sense of like I'm of the greater good. Um, and Jonathan Rose is definitely like one of the biggest names out there um, from my experience. Now, how is it opening an office in, in a different location? Is that, I mean, you're going to, do you plan on hiring people, are you expanding or, or are you are you focused on a certain territory? Definitely. Yeah. So while, while the title is California, it's it's really a, a West Coast mandate. So from Seattle down to San Diego and everything in between. Um, I had a similar experience uh, earlier in my career. There's a, a national developer headquartered in St. Louis called McCormick Baron Salazar. And I managed their work down in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. We did about a thousand units down there after the storm. And then opened up a San Francisco office from them for them. Um, and, and that first year was, was principally me working out of my, my loft in, <laughs> in Roma. and we, we expanded over, over time. And so 
you know, as our pipeline for Jonathan Rose Companies grows out here, we'll be expanding our, our staff as well. And I expect to bring on a construction manager, an analyst and, and project manager as, as soon as we, we grow our pipeline. Awesome. And then, uh, yeah, well, I guess we can get in a little bit later regarding how COVID's kind of affecting all the investments and stuff like that. Um, but I wanted to start more at the beginning of your career of your life, actually. I mean, did you grow up in the Bay Area? Do you have a, this, this is what you call home when you grew up? Yeah, definitely home. Uh, I'm, I'm originally from, from East Oakland, uh, but grew up mostly in, in Sacramento. And my parents live just outside of, of Sacramento now. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting time. My, when I was growing up, my father was the head of uh, emergency medical planning disaster response unit for the state of California. Wow. And so in this time with... You've been uh, preparing the, your entire life for this last two months. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was always focused around earthquakes and floods and fires, but um, it's, you know, some of the remnants of his early planning in the 80s, I think, is is part of the, the response now. So it would have been interesting to get to get his take on it. Um, and my mother also worked uh, mostly in, in, in government and uh, grew up in, in, in Sacramento, you know, playing sports, uh, went to school back east and then transferred in the in the middle of my sophomore year back to the Bay Area and finished up at Cal after spending a year in Egypt and oh, wow. playing sports out there while uh, studying abroad. And play sports out there, you said? Yeah, I was on the, uh, so I, I always wanted to be a basketball player. I'm six, five. Um, mm. but, but my talents were, were in swimming. So I, I swam, uh, my first three semesters in college at, at Fordham university transferred to uh, Cal and then got lost on campus, found the study abroad office and ended up spending a year in Egypt where I got to uh, play on the American University in Cairo's basketball team. So that was awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, So your family was in government. Is that where your sense sort of, of giving back, of being community type of sensibilities came from? I, I would say so, but but also particularly in in my draw toward real estate and and community development, you know, being originally from a neighborhood in East Oakland that was once vibrant, had shopping and, and movie theaters and seeing the decline there and also growing up in a neighborhood in, in Sacramento that had a very similar profile with plenty of restaurants and shopping and entertainment and, you know, seeing all that sort of decay over time, people move out to the suburbs and, you know, empty storefronts, vacancies, check cashing places, liquor stores kind of bubble up around my neighborhood. Yeah. And then did you have, as a kid, did you have an interest in real estate at all or that came later in life? Not so much. I, di- I didn't even know that was an in- industry when I was when I was growing up. I, I studied history as an undergrad in college and uh, had had full expectations of doing something related to Middle East studies um, and, and went to grad school at, in, in New York at NYU to do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was there for about three weeks and saw the second plane hit the hit the tower um, 
from uh, from the street. Um, yeah. That that changed my my perspective a lot. I was accepted to a fellowship with the the Navy, um, and all I had to do was go down to Lower Manhattan and sign the the final documentation on September twelfth, two thousand one. And the building was destroyed and um, got the call back uh, the following October to see if I was still interested. And at the same time, was getting recruited by some of the security agencies due to, uh, you know, my history in studying Arabic. Not that I was very, very good at it, but, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the Middle East, um, studying in, in Egypt and in, in Morocco and, and studying Middle East history and I didn't really have an interest in in that type of of work, and so I pivoted to finance because while I didn't know what I wanted to do, I figured numbers would be important in whatever I did, and got uh, connected with some interesting internships with um, a, a city council member in, in New York, and then with the mayor's office of management budget budget during the uh, Bloomberg administration, and then ultimately with the small community development corporation in, in Bed-Stuy, New York, that was uh, doing some interesting things, rehabbing old brownstones and selling them as, oh, as cool. affordable housing. Yeah. Do or die, Bed-Stuy, right? Um, that's right. My, yeah, and that's pretty interesting. I studied history as well. And I was involved with like political science and I was working for like a state senator. I always had this really, I studied abroad too as well. And I had this real interest in place. Like for some reason, history, like I just wanted to get to know place. I really love cities. I mean, did that, did you always have an interest or did somehow it just started developing? Like, you know what, this is, I, I don't know how to make this into a career, but I kind of feel like I, I like this. Yeah. I was, I was fascinated by why certain urban areas were fun, vibrant places to live and while others weren't. And curious of what tools could be used to to revitalize those that weren't. And I didn't know how to do that. Uh, getting introduced to the Bridge Street Development Corporation in Bed-Stuy and the early work that they were doing uh, in the early 2000s and, and helping to uh, reinvigor reinvigorate and, and reinvest in uh, that section of Brooklyn uh, for the locals was was truly inspiring. And I wanted to see, you know, how could that be done at scale? And so uh, after after finishing school, I, I worked with uh, a large national foundation called the Annie Casey Foundation, which is headquartered in Baltimore. And they had a neighborhoods initiative in which I was working in. And I was at that time focused on in two neighborhoods in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we were making place-based investments there. And then spent some time in D.C. with a small organization, and this is, you know, uh, pre-Lehman, but uh, at, at that time we were seeing a number of, of banks and supermarkets and retailers make investments in, in urban areas that they didn't traditionally locate in. And so this organization would do alternative market analyses to really get at the micro level in the neighborhood, how much purchasing power in some of these emerging markets. And it was really interesting stuff. I ended up writing a paper uh, for the Brookings Institute on, on how to estimate the, the value of informal economies in, in some of these underserved communities around the country. 
And uh, we did we did some great work that helped get some investment in some some challenging areas. And after that, uh, I got invited to join a, a small cohort in a um, uh, in a group at the University of Pennsylvania a fellowship called the Center for Urban Redevelopment Excellence that unfortunately isn't around anymore. But a lot of the national developers were were participating in this, and so you had the related in the four cities of the world. Jonathan Rose Companies was involved, as well as McCormick Baron Salazar on the West Coast. Uh, Midpen was, was involved. Rich Housing was involved. And it was a great experience. The cohort took real estate finance class with the Wharton students. We took master planning classes with the architecture students. We took land use with, with the law students. And then we're placed with these, these developers that were doing interesting work in urban areas around the country. And that's really where I got my, my first uh, taste of doing real estate at, at scale, um, getting invited to, to work with McCormick Baron Salazar. And during the first two years I was at McCormick Baron Salazar, the cohort would get together in different places around the country and, and look at innovative things that were happening in, in urban development. And that's when I got thrown into the mix post-Katrina to, to work on the redevelopments down there. And I imagine you were working a lot with the city and city government and stuff like that too. But why is it so freaking hard to get stuff done through the government? It seems like, I mean, there's a lot of different, uh, San Francisco is the best example, it seems like. There's so many different special interests or something tugging at the, the coat strings or the, of the uh, coattails of, of the government. Does yeah, it make it, it really frustrating as, as, a, as someone who's trying to partner with them? It's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's an understandable challenge because our, our cities and states have limited resources. And when they have those resources, they want to make sure to get the economic multiple. So while initially, you know, the low in, income housing tax credit was designed to house people who earn 60% of the local area median income or below, it's turned into a program that gets paired with uh, basically grant money that comes in to these deals as subordinate debt from state and local governments. And when they're putting their money into these projects, they wanna make sure that locals are getting jobs, that they're being paid at, at a living wage, and that we are providing housing for the what they deem to be the, the, the most important uh, targeted population. So in some cases that might be seniors, in other cases that might be larger families. And when you're building housing for, for larger families in San Francisco and they're asking you to build three, four, and sometimes five bedroom units, that gets to be really expensive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it is. I mean, how is there a solution? There's obviously not an easy solution because no one's come up with it yet, but I mean, it's, I live here in the Bay area and it seems a, you know, ton of homelessness, ton of, you know, I have friends that are, you know, blue collar workers who work in San Francisco. And they have to commute, you know, a long ways just to get to work, just yeah. to afford somewhere to live. I mean, is there a, how do we, how do we fix this? I know you, you're doing your part in, in, in the affordable housing, bro, but is there something that we could do to fix this? Or is there some way to make the, it attractive to build affordable housing here because you're, it feels like people are losing money by doing that, right? Like you're not getting the returns because it's so expensive. So that it's how I understand it. It's, it's a building affordable housing is a 
different capital stack and financial structure than building market rate housing. Um, but I got to tell you, all of the resources that are available to build afford- affordable housing are oversubscribed and extremely competitive. And so even if more people wanted to, to get in the mix and be able to build affordable housing, there just aren't enough resources available now. And so as someone who's spent the the large amount of their career in affordable housing, I am a true proponent of we need to build housing across the board. We need to build supply for for everyone. I I, I tell my friends um, uh, out out on this side of the bay that, you know, if someone has $3,000 to spend every month on, on housing, and we don't build them a unit for three that that costs three thousand dollars a month. They're going to go to that two thousand or one thousand or five hundred dollar a month property and be able to pay up to the three thousand dollars. And so that's how displacement takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not by providing additional supply because these folks are coming no matter what, right? Uh, the jobs are here. People need places to live, and if yeah. people are making high incomes. They have the resources to, to to pay the high rents, and so we need we need housing at at all income levels uh, to make sure that we're we're meeting the uh, the supply requirements of the demand. Yeah, I mean that's I've heard developers say like they developers are stupid. We just keep building, like <laughs> we keep building, and then we overbuild, right? And then that's how housing kind of goes down. Just there you over, go, oversupply. Um, so you were at McCormick and then, so you had, it seemed like you had a real, the history background, had a real sense of place and community. You wanted to build that. That's great. I mean, is, what other skill sets are needed in order to be a good affordable housing developer and investment professional? So uh, my, my mentor who uh, is president of McCormick Baron Salazar is, is a guy by the name of, of Vince Bennett. Um, and, and he's like a big brother to me. And, and he taught me very early on when he was looking to, to when he was interviewing me um, and he was looking to, to grow his team. You know, he said, we can we can teach the technical skills. Um, but what's going to be critical is someone that can communicate to multiple stakeholders. So needing to be comfortable enough to uh, communicate with, with equity investors and debt providers, as well as community organizations, residents, state, local government, um, and, and in some cases, the, the, the federal government. So being able, you know, you're, you're working on a, a very complex project that that requires buy-in and support from so many different stakeholders and you need to be able to communicate what it is you're trying to do and how it benefits them in language that that makes sense and resonates with them and i've, I've taken that to heart throughout my career nice and so what what does it take yeah what, what what specifically does it take to get an affordable housing deal done takes a lot. <laughs> like how long does it take? I always think like, oh man, we need a more affordable housing. And it seems like such, I mean, the returns are generally pretty, that's the benefit, right? It's a pretty more stable return generally on if you're just doing for the investment returns, right? So if you're, if you're just buying affordable housing, um, that's, that's stabilized, you can get, uh, decent yields, uh, with lower risk, uh, 
usually when there's some sort of operating subsidy like Section 8 that's there. So, you know, we're in a, a, a challenging time right now. Um, however, the, the agency lenders are still active and, you know, we're able to, with our private equity uh, investment funds, continue to seek oper- acquisition opportunities uh, for our preservation of, of affordable housing. And, and you can get um, solid, solid yields there. From the returns for, for new construction, that gets different types of challenges in, in, in different locales. Um, to be able to build affordable housing in a place like the city of San Francisco, because of costs associated with with infrastructure, with with construction, um, and and the the expensive programs that are usually required to be awarded a, a deal in the city of San Francisco, it takes a lot of local subsidy, and that local subsidy they want to see some of that money get get paid back through the cash flow, uh, so that they can then recycle some of it and make it available for additional affordable housing, and so you know, your returns as an owner um, may not look as, as good in a place like San Francisco as, as in other places. However, unlike in market rate deals, uh, a big economic driver of affordable housing developers is the developer fees that you get. You typically get higher, and this is nationally, you typically get significantly higher developer fees um, to do affordable housing than you would to do uh, market rate housing. And that's because you don't necessarily have the same back-end opportunities for either cash flow or the sale of, of the property. So it's, it's a different economic um, model, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, there's, there are plenty of, of companies that have been successful implementing it around the country. So if you were doing just conventional multifamily housing and you wanted to get into market or into affordable, like it, what, you have to learn just kind of the, what do you have, what would you have to learn? What are the most important things to, it's just you like learning a whole new how, language or. Yeah, it's, it's a completely different language. Uh, you have to learn how, because instead of sort of underwriting to a yield, uh, you're mostly underwriting to fill your gap in your capital stack mm-hmm. because the equity that you get from syndicating tax credits plus the uh, conventional debt that you get in most markets now in this country um, is, is not going to be enough to actually pay for everything you need to do to, to complete a development. And so you have to go out and find gap funds that typically come in the form of subordinate debt. And that can be issued from the federal government, from the state government, from local governments. And uh, so you know, you're looking to fill your gap more so than back solving to, you know, a return on cost or, or a, uh, an IRR. Is it easier to build and buy affordable housing and like different locations? Like, is, is it harder on the West coast than it is on the East coast? Um, is it different cities that kind of make it easier for you to do that? Or there, there are certain markets that have strong infrastructure around the development of affordable housing. So the, the city of San Francisco has the mayor's office of housing and community development that have uh, a lot of uh, bright, innovative, um, entrepreneurial people. Uh, and there's, there's a, a structure that they've spent a lot of time 
putting putting together to be able to do high volume relative to to other places of of affordable housing, um, as well as New York City has uh, a very strong infrastructure that that may be stronger than than most states um, in terms of housing finance agencies and how how they. Uh, are able to implement their affordable housing programs there. Others that don't have as much subsidy, it's it's a little more challenging. Um, less resources means more competition, means less volume. So you know, it, it's it differs all over the country. And now, what about operating affordable housing? Is that is that uh, does Jonathan Rose operate too? We do. We we have a uh, property management affiliate that also uh, looks to coordinate the provision of community supportive services, which we think is, is absolutely critical uh, to making sure that, you know, housing isn't just shelter, but it's uh, also a pathway to bettering families' lives. And uh, we are expanding our, our property management footprint we recently hired a, a new president who's also based of, of the property management company, and he is based in Thousand Oaks in California as well. So we're just as we're looking to grow our development and acquisitions presence through through me in California, we're also looking to to grow our uh, uh, property management footprint throughout the country. That's great. And why did they choose California now? Is there something going on or? Like what did, were this, did they think about doing this before? Have they, have they ever invested a lot in California or is this brand new? Yeah. So, um, for city, when they were doing their large disposition, they, they exited out of both their, their market rate and affordable portfolios. Uh, Jonathan Rose companies purchased the, the national, uh, affordable portfolio, which included a number of assets, uh, throughout California. And we've exited some out of some of our assets in, in Northern California, but are actively looking to acquire more here. Um, a number of our investors are, are West Coast based and have asked the question, what, what are we doing to um, help solve some of the, the housing issues in, in the state of California? And so that was one of the motivating factors. Um, and so, and, and also Jonathan has, uh, Jonathan Rose has a lot of relationships with uh, the tech uh, community, uh, as well as the design community uh, in Northern California. And uh, he's been asked by, by both of those areas to, to get involved. And so it was really a, a great fit for me. Um, this is where my, my passion and experience ha- ha- has been for some time. And uh, had some success uh, opening up an, an office previously for another national affordable developer. So I'm really excited with the opportunity to do it for a company that I've admired from afar for the better of, of 15 years plus. Yeah, they're definitely one of the, the biggest players in that space. Now, do you, I mean, as someone who may not know, now there's a, you know, when I think when I first heard about affordable housing, I always thought, oh, it's like non-for-profit. Like affordable housing is like a non-for-profit. Like it's, so there's a difference, right? There's there's for-profit investment firms that invest and build in affordable housing, and then there's non-for-profits. And so um, do you guys ever work in conjunction with like a mission housing or something like that? Or is it totally separate? Or it feels like you have, a, you have the same like mission. I mean, obviously you want, you're trying to get return for your investors, but like you're overall trying to get like housing built and, and shelter, right? 
That's right. We're, we're a mission-based or organization that is is structured as, as a for-profit entity. Um, some of the biggest affordable housing developers in the country that are, you know, peers and, and competitors are structured as, as nonprofit organizations. And, you know, if you look at the, the lists of the, the largest affordable housing developers in the, in the country, you, you'll see that balance sheets, whether you're a for-profit or a nonprofit, um, that designation doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a tax designation. Um, however, you know, some of the, a lot of that, the housing organizations are community-based and we do partner with those organizations, particularly in California, um, whether it's to be a, a co-developer or for the provision of community supportive services. And in, in some cases, uh, you'll see for-profit developers work with nonprofits, property management companies to, to manage some of their their affordable assets because they they have that experience. Uh, so we we look for partnerships a, across the board uh, with both nonprofit and, and for-profit uh, affordable housing organizations. Now, if you're speaking to like young people who are coming out and they're like, you know, you get a young guy from, I think you graduated from from Penn, right? With your 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 your, your redevelopment um, fellowship. Now, a guy coming out of Penn, right? He's got the option. He's like, I'm going to go to, uh, I got an analyst job at Blackstone or like I got an analyst job at like uh, Jonathan Rose. Like, I mean, what's, what would be kind of your sell and what's, what's sort of the difference of like the environment and also like their kind of career trajectory? Like what, what I, I would think that there's a lot of smart people in affordable housing and like you see a lot of people, I think it takes like a certain special type of person to get in there because maybe, I don't know if like the returns on like salary initially or something is a little different, but it, it's not everyone chooses that route. What do you think? What's you know, kind of the difference? Di- different planets, right? I mean, I, I spent a couple of years at, at PGM Real Estate on the institutional investment side and it was it was a great experience for me there. And I worked with a lot of motivated, uh, super bright and interesting um people. Um, you know, I think the difference is, and this this gets to maybe not so much the difference between affordable housing and uh, investment, but the difference between doing development and uh, investment is 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 very different. Uh, the guy I, I work for at PGM Real Estate, uh, a great guy by the name of, of Tim Hennessy, um, you know, we sat down one day and he said, you know, Yusef, you know, on the investment side, you know, if you're looking at a list and if this needs to happen and if this needs to happen, and if this needs to happen to, to make it a good investment, then, then we move on to the next one. And on the development side, and I would say maybe more so on the affordable housing side, what makes you a, a good developer is the ability to, to, to solve those those ifs. Uh, and for me, that's that's the fun part of the job. It's if I can get the the, the state to to agree to, you know, let this a- aspect of my my project happen, then that'll give me the ability to go get this resource from the city. And if I have this resource from the city, I can show the federal government that I'm leveraging local resources, and they'll want to put some resources in. And then all of a sudden, I can build this wonderful mixed income development. And so. Uh, I would say, you know, it's it's sort of choose your own adventure. 
Um, there's great opportunities uh, on, on both lines, and it's really just what, where your interests lay. It's got to be pretty cool to be like, if, you know, some some people in the real estate, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing investments in Timbuktu, right? But they're sitting in California and they're just running numbers. Today, basically, they don't really get to see the impact, but you're actually doing it. You're investing and developing basically where you live, right? So you get to kind That's of right. see the, the change happening in front of you. That's got to be pretty rewarding and pretty special. Yeah. And, you know, in my career, I did a lot of uh, public housing redevelopment where, you know, you're dealing with uh, a part of infrastructure in our country that has really had challenges um, over a handful of, of, of decades with the, the disrepair. And usually within those developments, you have to demolish what's there and then you build back through a, a mixed income framework. So you replace all of the, the public housing that was there and then you bring in additional affordable workforce housing, and then you bring in some unrestricted market rate so that you're deconcentrating poverty in this area and providing housing for, for all income types. And working with the residents in those communities at the beginning where, you know, in some cases, there are families who have been living there for generations, and they don't necessarily trust when someone from outside the community is coming in saying, Oh, don't worry. Just move out of your home. <laughs> We're going to knock it down. And when you come back, it'll be much nicer. Yeah. And, you know, doing it the right way when working in partnership with the residents, um, staying in contact throughout, uh, letting them have significant partnership and input in what the design looks like, listening to what the needs are. You know, when, when that housing gets completed and those same residents that, in some cases, where we're protesting against the redevelopment, are inviting you into into their homes for for coffee. Um, it's 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 an amazing experience, and to see the transformation firsthand is is worth all of the uh, the challenges along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, where do you see affordable housing going? I mean, everyone says we got the affordability crisis. I mean it. Are things happening in government and in real estate in general that are trying to, are things changing? And what can I do as an individual? Like I sit here on the sidelines and I'm like, shit, like things, like I see people out there, like can't afford to live. Like, is there anything yeah. we could do as just citizens of the, of the world to help? Yeah. I mean, as citizens, you can, every time any bond measure or proposition comes up that provides Afford, additional affordable housing resources, make those available. Uh, vote vote yes for more resources toward <laughs> affordable housing. Uh, vote yes on, on things that accelerate the development process for, for all housing because we need housing at, at all income levels. Um, and, you know, while uh, this pandemic is, is definitely going to impact state and local government budgets, which could cut you know, subsidies that are currently available for affordable housing. Um, every time we've had a, a, a major downturn, um, the federal government has has come back with some recovery dollars to help support the development of affordable housing. And I fully expect that to come in some form. Have no idea what that will look like or when that will happen but uh, that'll be a critical resource to continue uh, and accelerate the production of affordable housing. 
And I imagine the, I mean, people are talking about how, you know, they're not, you know, they're collecting 60% of rents or 70% of rents. I mean, on the affordable side, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is it a little more stable because you're getting like subsidized rents? Is that correct? So, so in areas that have uh, subsidy, operating subsidy, whether it's through a, a housing authorities, uh, public housing dollars, or uh, Section Eight, you know, rent collection is is pretty stable. But in just straight affordable tax credit housing, where people are earning uh, below sixty percent of the area's median income, I mean, these are these are the folks that work in your restaurants, uh, work in a lot of these retail stores that, that are closing down. And so, you know, we, we fully expect to see uh, challenges with individuals and their ability to, to continue to pay rent. Gotcha. Extremely interesting. That's, uh, I love it. I think it's fascinating. I almost got into it and uh, it's maybe one of the reasons I'm so, I'm kind of passionate about it. I want to learn more and more. So thank you for sharing all that with us. Um, sure. Are you ready for the hot seat? Let's do it. The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services, which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Let's do it. All right. These are the five questions I ask all of my guests. Um, any books you recommend specifically in regards to the affordable housing subject? Uh, well, Couple books, uh, the Well-Tempered City by Jonathan Rose for for anyone who <laughs> well done. <laughs> you know, okay. I know, right? It sounds for <laughs> the man, right? Um, but actually, when when he released that that book, uh, I read it immediately. Uh, for anyone who's an urbanist or interested in in global urbanism, uh, it is it is a fa- very fascinating read. Um, and then it, this isn't have anything to do with with real estate but it, uh in terms of leadership i'm a huge fan of uh the book called the black count by uh tom reese which is this amazing true story of uh the father of alexander dumas um who you know st- is 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 born in the in the west indies starts off as a slave and ends up uh being a general in the french army and and um Having wow. a few Napoleon, et cetera. It's it's one of my favorite reads of all time. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. I've I haven't heard of that one. Um, do you listen to any podcasts? Any podcast recommendations or I, I listen to too many podcasts. Um, when I am walking, uh, I have my my earbuds in. Um, I'm I'm a bit of a, an a- addict of wristwatches, so I listen to uh, Hodinkee Radio and 
as I don't get to watch uh, sports very much, uh, I always get my my fill in a 20 minute uh, pardon the interruption podcast, but also very much enjoy revisionist history, the PBS NewsHour and uh, a bit of rewatchables uh, from Bill Simmons group. Nice. Uh, what do you like to do outside of work besides be the dad of a couple of kids? Yeah. Yeah. That's where most of the energy is now. And, you know, I really, uh, I miss the pool. Um, I continue to, 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 to swim and I miss all of the crazy folks, uh, who show up between five 30 and six 30 every morning to jump in the, the cold, cold water. Um, <laughs> yeah. and I, I very much enjoy annual trips to uh bass country with, with the family, which, look like are going to be on on hold for the uh, foreseeable future. Yeah, that's been I have a couple trips planned with my family. It's kind of sad, um, but next year, hopefully. Yep. Um, now, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? I would say, Yusuf, in three years, you are going to work for the Bridge Street Development Corporation and you're going to be rehabbing brownstones and bed and selling them for $250,000. Please buy one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They had that New York times article, right? Where they showed everyone who lived in the different brownstones and how much they sold for and stuff like that. And, and bed Yeah. Uh, my mom, my mom was a kid and grew up there. So I wish she, her family kept that, but they did yeah. not, unfortunately. Um, now, what do you look for in hiring people? Just generally like type of people and also maybe skill set. Yeah, it, it goes it goes back to uh, what I told you. My my mentor Vince Bennett taught me is someone who has the ability to communicate with with a diverse set of stakeholders. Because to get a development deal done, I think that's probably the most uh, important thing. Awesome. Well, Yusuf, you're an amazing guy. Congratulations on the new opportunity with Jonathan Rose, and thanks for sharing your story with us. Hey, thanks a lot. Stay safe. You too.